Maybe don't know. Maybe don't. This time, 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 What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to episode 149 of the Power Company podcast brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. I am still here in Lander, Wyoming, where the snow is just melting, and I went and shoveled off the top of a few boulders the other day, so I'm going to go out and try those, assuming they're dry, as soon as I get this episode out to you all. Uh, That's the plan, anyway. And Just like it has been the last couple of episodes, I am very, very busy here, so I'm not going to take up a ton of your time in the intro to this episode. Uh, Instead, we're going to get into it pretty quick. However, I do want to say, just because I'm excited about it, and I'm letting the cat out of the bag a little early here, but I've got a book coming out soon. I just wrapped up the writing for it. All of the illustrations are done, and they were done by my friend Brendan Leonard at semirad.com. And I'm really, really excited to get it out and get it into your hands. First of many, I hope. So without further ado... Dr. Jared Veggie has been on the podcast a couple of other times, both popular episodes. You should go check those out if you have not. Uh, he and I sat down at CWA this past spring where we both taught pre-conference workshops and we both spoke during the seminar. And if, like I've said before, if you're in the industry, you should definitely go to CWA. It's a massively productive event for me. And I think if you're in a similar role in in the indoor climbing world, it's going to be the same for you. Anyway, we sat down in a hotel room at the very last minute of the CWA. Originally, Nate was going to join us, uh, but we had to cancel that first chat. And then Jared and I bumped into each other right at the last minute and we sat down and got this done before the housekeeping staff kicked us out and um what we talked about were hot topics myths um ideas things that people argue about in this world of training and rehab and we get into some topics like stretching prehab mobility uh, training in closed crimp and Uh, A little bit of pain science, which actually I'll be talking to Dr. Natasha Barnes about, or I'll be putting that episode out fairly soon. Um, In the next month, you'll be hearing from Natasha all about pain science. So I'm excited to have these uh, people like Jared and Tyler Nelson and Natasha and Ava Lopez weighing in on the podcast and, and giving the more analytical and the more objective side of, of things, backed up by research and by science, because I think it's a massively important part of this whole process. So I'm going to jump into this with Jared, and I'll see you guys on the other side. Let's get into it. When you're doing warm-ups, when you're doing easier routes, yeah, 
you better think about what to do with your shoulders and know your positioning. When you're trying to send, you're trying to send, and that's the only thing on your mind. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people using your climbing-specific dynamic warm-ups recently. A couple of people in my my pre-conference workshop used it before we climbed. So that's awesome. Yeah, and we've been using it at the PCC as well with Steve and Charlie and oh, nice doing built a lot of that in. stuff. Yeah, that's yeah, fun. Yeah, for sure. I do it every time before I climb. Yeah, I do some sort of version of it, you know, and really depending on what. I'm climbing on that day, I'll use parts of it, you know, and modified parts of it, depending on what I know. If I'm working on a project that I know they're going to be difficult moves of a certain kind, then I'll do some sort of version of off the wall simulation of those moves, you know, similar to what you're doing. So prime yourself for the wall. Yeah, totally. You know, and I think that like the way we warm up and, uh, get ready to perform, whether it's stretching, dynamic warm-ups, whatever, is kind of a hot topic. And a lot of people debate what the best way is, you know. And I, and that's what I think we're going to do here today is just talk about some of these hotly debated ideas and, and theories and modes of training, prehab, rehab, what's dangerous, what's not, what's performance inhibiting, what's not. And just get into, you know, both of our opinions, experience. You're going to have a lot more literature-based opinions than I will, I'm sure. And, you know, I've worked with thousands and thousands of climbers in different ways and seen things that contradict what the literature says. So I'm just curious to know what your opinions on a lot of these things are. So Yeah, likewise. I'm interested to see what we align on and then what we differ on as well. Yeah, totally. And maybe the best place to start is I, I've heard recently a lot of trainers, coaches, climbers say this phrase, almost a contradictory two phrase sentence is there's no such thing as prehab, but then following it up with strength training is prehab. You know, and in my mind, I'm like, I think you're contradicting yourself. You're <laughs> you're saying there is prehab, but there isn't prehab. And I, I sort of get what they're saying in that prehab doesn't need to be its own category if you're doing everything right. But most of us aren't doing everything right, and why not have another category if it if it fits what you're doing? So, what are your thoughts on that statement? That yeah, well, I'll tackle the second statement because okay. I think that's easier to uh, okay. to Perfect. pick into a little bit more. And so strength is prehab as the second statement yep. of the contradictory two. Um, I think, first of all, defining strength because strength is typically your ability to output about six repetitions to failure. Okay. And so for a sport climber, strength you know, you're doing more than six moves on a route, uh, right? Bouldering sure. better be a short problem, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, but I think strength is if you first take the term and change it to muscle performance. Okay. And then now you've expanded the category to strength, power, endurance, 
neurologic changes. And so that's one type of category. Another category is then going to be mobility. And another category is movement. Muscle performance, mobility, and movement can pretty much cover the spectrum of all the things that our body does mechanically. And so of those three, so muscle performance, mobility, movement, if I had to put a word in front of, you know, what is prehab, uh, I guess I'd shoot it back to you. Of those three, which one would you put in front or which one would you say blank is prehab? Man, I don't, I don't think I would make a distinction between the three. I think the combination of, of those things is what, what stops us and stop is the wrong word. What, what makes it less likely that we're going to get injured? Yeah. And I, yeah, I think in the body, we combine our mobility, we combine our muscle performance, and then we put that into kind of movement coordination and move efficiently. Right. I'm never using just strength at one time. I'm also in a position that might require me to have a greater range of motion or a little more flexibility. And I also want to move in a way that's going to complement that strength and that mobility and make it less likely that I'm going to be injured. Yeah. So I think in the perfect world, all right, you have, it's not as catchy, but you would have a combination <laughs> phrase of muscle performance, mobility, and, and movement is prehab. Yeah. If I were to st- distill it down into just one word, if I had to pick one, if I was like, I had to only pick one, I would for sure pick movement mm-hmm. and movement patterns and movement efficiency. And especially think about how it relates to climbing. So let's give an example, maybe like a lock off. So okay. let's say you're locking off when you're climbing, you're pulling down, and every single time you do that, your shoulder comes forward. So you can kind of imagine that you're going into lock off position, you're pulling down, engaging the biceps, and then the shoulder blade kind of rounds forward. Mm-hmm. It's very typical to, to see. And if someone does that repeatedly over time, which tissues are going to break down? Well, typically the, the biceps and the biceps as it attaches into the shoulder. So someone's going to get a lot of like front of the shoulder pain as they're constantly locking off. And so I look at that and if they were to purely strengthen, let's say they were to strengthen the heck out of that biceps muscle, make that biceps tissue more resilient, and they still continue to lock off with that movement pattern of the shoulder blade rounding forward as they lock off, well, they're generally still going to get that front of the shoulder pain from sure. tissue overuse. Yep. So strengthening is not going to work there, but could we strengthen something else? So maybe you strengthen the back of the shoulder, so the shoulder blades. Mm-hmm. So you stabilize their shoulder blades. You work on all these strength exercises to improve the, whether you choose hypertrophy, whether you choose power, whether you choose endurance, whether you choose true strength, whatever you do, you do exercises to improve the shoulder blade uh, muscle performance. They okay. go back. They do the same lock off time and time again. They can have the strongest muscles in the back, but if they're not firing in this sequence, they'll still roll their shoulder blade forward. The biceps will still overwork and still be stressed. Mobility, not that much of a role in a lock off um, mm-hmm. per se, as long as you can fully bend your, your elbow. And so then it leaves us with movement and movement performance. And if you did not strengthen, if you did not stretch, but you just kept your shoulder in the correct place, almost created a foundation as you then went into the lock-off, there'd be the least likely chance over time that you would develop that shoulder tendinopathy or biceps tendinopathy. 
Sure. So, so that's where I would say that, and I have a bias. So I, you know, I went through, I got my doctor of physical therapy. I went through a year long uh, residency to specialize in orthopedics. And then I went through a year long fellowship where for the first six months, I could not touch a single patient right. and I had to analyze their movement patterns. And so I have a strong, heavy bias just for context on sure. ch- changing movement patterns, um, being probably the most fundamental thing. And in a sport like climbing, where there's slow, controlled, methodical movement, you have the best chance to, to make corrections in real time. So that, that's my bias. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, I think we all come in with a, a certain bias of some kind. And having been a gymnastics coach, then a climber, and climbing coach, movement is sort of built into my, my pre-programmed method of coaching. You know, um, We very rarely answered things in gymnastics with more strength. It was more often, uh, 99% of the time, a different way to move, a better way to move. Um, question on your shoulder. Yeah. Um, example here. Am I wrong in saying, and maybe I'm oversimplifying, but those movement patterns where you're doing a lock off, you roll your shoulder, shoulder forward. Does that just become habit over time? Is it just something that's ingrained and, and could be an easy change, an easy win if we can work that habit out. Yeah, I see it as it potentially, if it's habit, mm-hmm. that's straight movement coordination. That's right. straight movement. Right. You can change that. Mm-hmm. So you can warm up with that. You can change the movement in real time. The challenge is where the loads or the demands become higher. Right. And that's where then you have to bleed categories. Mm-hmm. So for example, let's say you're in a really overhung position, in a really challenging position, you're locking off, and you have the movement pattern to be able to stabilize your shoulder, but you never train your shoulder blade muscles, the middle trapezius, the rhomboids, the ones that put them in the right position. You don't have that muscle performance. And now even though you're trying to program that pattern in your head, you don't have the strength to do it, don't have the performance to do it, and so your shoulder still, or shoulder blade still comes forward. Gotcha. So that is where then the muscle performance exercises come into play. That's when you do your T's where you bend over and you engage your shoulder blades as you bring your arms out. That's where you do even a more sports specific, almost like you take a cable and you pull the cable down into a lock off Mm -hmm. and then you squeeze your shoulder blade back against that cable and resistance. And then that's when you have to really improve the muscle performance to be able to efficiently move because the demand or the load was much greater than your your muscles could contract into. Right. How do you feel bigger, more compound lifts fit into that? Things like, you know, heavy bent over rows or even deadlifts, something like that. Where would that fit into this example of of shoulder, you know, strengthening the back of the shoulder? Would you do those early on? Would you not worry about them and just do the sport-specific stuff, the the tees or these simulated lock-offs? Where do you see that stuff fitting? Yeah, in? and that's where we get into the categories of muscle performance. So really, okay, if you're doing, let's say, uh, I like, let's say a bent-over row. I mm-hmm. like that one because deadlift, you're going to have straight arms. 
And yeah. so that's okay. not as much simulating lock-off. Bent over row, you can load some true, you know, you can still load some true weight yep. and then max out at, let's say, six repetitions. So that would be in muscle performance category. Let's say that would be a strength exercise. Mm -hmm. You're building true strength and your ability in a very challenging holder position to, um, to perform that. And that's probably going to be really effective way with heavy load and heavy weight to simulate what we just mentioned. But let's say you're an athlete and you, you know, let's say you're a trad climber and you, you know, you're on a, you're on a long trad route and you get to, you know, pitch seven and it's a really sporty section and you have to bust out some other tools in your toolbox. Do trad climbers have other tools? Let's be honest. Well, I, I trad climb and aid climb, so I have plenty of, plenty no, of tools. No. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, we, we won't digress into that subject. <laughs> So, uh, so anyway, so let's say you're, you, you get into this like seventh pitch, it gets really sporty and there's some lock off move and overall you've just been working your ass off all day. You're very fatigued. You go into pull that lock off position and then you think back the training up to this climb, what should I have done? Should I have done bent over rows, six reps to maximum? Or should I have done endurance exercises, such as taking a resistance band, fatiguing at 15 reps, or even fatiguing at a minute, going through an exercise? What's mm -hmm. going to carry over the best to that? And that, what would you say for that in that example? I don't know that I think one has a big advantage over the other. I'd have to look at the more complete situation. Like, is it such a difficult move that you can't do it? Or is it that you're actually getting tired and can't do it? And you know, I would it really say, depends on the athlete. Yeah, and I'd say, in, let's say in this scenario, because I'm making a, a contrived situation right, to build a right. point. Um, but uh, <laughs> but in this scenario, let's say it's fatigue, and you're in that you're case, just, you need more capacity. You need the ability to do those moves for longer, and you know the I might start months before with the the pure strength, and then I'm going to move more into the let's let's get you ready for the demands of whatever this goal is so more fatigue yeah and i think that's where if you can align yourself with what style of climbing do you do and then yep. when do you find yourself in these challenging positions where you're susceptible or at risk then you can start to say okay which type of muscle performance exercise should i be performing mm -hmm. so that's an example of like strength scenario and then the trad climber on the seventh pitch trying to lock off a sporty move while they're fatigued maybe an endurance parameter and then I'm a huge fan or I support a lot neurologic changes and okay. doing something prior to activity at a sub threshold or before you fatigue to try and almost preheat or activate a muscle. So this would be another scenario I'd say that let's say you did all your supplemental strength training and let's say you, you realize when you lock off shoulder blade rolls forward and that strength is really helping you keep it back. But you did that last week or you did that three days ago. So how do we know that you can utilize that in the moment? And so I oftentimes give climbers I work with or, or these athletes, I give them a pre-activation exercise. Okay. So before you get on the wall, take a resistance band or go flat against the wall and do a wall angel or do something at a sub threshold, meaning non-fatigable yep. to just turn on and feel that muscle and then go and climb and, and the hypothesis, the theory, the hope is that that movement pattern is improved because the area in your brain where those shoulder blade muscles, uh, this, it's called a somatotopic map, but where they're represented, 
that is heightened a little bit more. And now sure. you may be more easily able to recruit that strength that you gained. And so that would be more like your neurologic changes that have a little bit more of a transient effect. And mm-hmm. so that would be something that I recommend actually as a warm up to, to do prior. And you just want to make sure they're non-fatigable. So you're not fatiguing through an exercise that should be helping you. Sure. Now, when you're performing, when you're on this route that's the, you know, you're on the seventh pitch, you're hoping to send the whole route ground up, this is where it really matters. Would you say people should not worry about, not think about, not put processing power toward, I need to get my shoulder into this position to make it safe and go more toward, I'm going to do whatever it takes? Or are you hoping that people stand up on the ledge, do some wall angels, and then launch into the crux pitch? So first of all, it's going to be extremely rare to see someone do. <laughs> that would be a great video to, to promote, to see someone like, you know, doing, a, doing some type of wall angel with their back on the belay station, you know, before they try and send the crux. But, if anybody's going to put that video out, it's you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm very realistic, you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm a climber. And when I climb, if I'm trying to challenge myself on a route or if I'm cruxing out or if I'm run out, the, the last thing that I think about is, ooh, where's my shoulder? Right. You know, where's the position? My hope is that all the training and everything you did leading up to that puts you in the best scenario. Right. But when you're trying to send, try and send. Like, I think you mentioned a good phrase. You said like processing power. Mm-hmm. And we have limited processing power and you got to laser in onto the route itself. And the more additional distractions you have in your head, you know, oh, is my belayer going to catch me? Is this pro not so good? Right. Should I keep my shoulder blade engaged when I grab this? No, grab the hold, get past it and move. And I think that's where, from movement efficiency standpoints, where I can connect a lot with with climbers that have injuries is by saying, when you're doing warm-ups, when you're doing right. like easier routes, yeah, you better think about what to do with your shoulders and know yep. your positioning. When you're trying to send, you're trying to send, and that's the only thing on your mind. Yeah, when, we, when we're teaching kind of global ideas of, of climbing movement, things like tension, efficiency, rhythm, things like that, we try to keep that to their warm-up time, um, maybe into their like moderate climbing um, once they've worked on it during their warmups for a while. And the idea, the hope, again, the hypothesis here is that we make it, we take those things from conscious processing when they're working on it in their warmups and they're on the moderate climbing, and it eventually becomes unconscious processing. So it kind of becomes this white noise that's just happening without you having to think about it so that you can use your conscious processing power on little tags you need. Like I need to really drive off this foot to make this move work, you know, because this is the penultimate crux move for me. I have to think about a little more. Um, and we've gotten tons of emails from people, tons of messages from clients saying things like, you know, I was working on these rooting drills. That's the, the name we've given our, our tension sort of, um, methodology is rooting and, I'll get messages from people saying these rooting drills seem silly to me at first, but 
I just sent my project and it occurred to me right after I stuck the crux move that I was rooting. Like didn't real, didn't think about it, but that's what I was doing. You know, and I think that's a really important part of what you're saying here is we work on these movement changes during warmups. And then when it's time to perform, we're not so worried about is my shoulder in the safest position to do this move. Yeah. And I think you're basically taking something, you're making it, as you said, it's automatic and then it becomes procedural memory mm-hmm. and almost, you know, stored in a different center of your brain to unlock that, that movement pattern. Right. And then you better hope that you have enough mobility and enough muscle performance to then be able to, to move efficiently. And if you don't, you may have inefficient movement and you may send, you may or may not get hurt, mm-hmm. but you know, you did your best on the route and that's kind of all you can do. Yeah, totally. So prehab doesn't have to look like and shouldn't look like maybe just the, you know, internal, external um, band exercises that you do for rotator that you constantly are seeing for rotator cuff rehab or something. Um, Prehab doesn't necessarily look like that in your mind either. No. And if I were to say, I I know that's gotten really popular in climbing and it, I think it's cool. I, I think it's great. And tells me that people are thinking about their bodies. Right. And if I see someone doing a rotator cuff exercise before they climb, I know that they have that being mindful. I just right. now need to make sure when they get on the wall that they're just as mindful about their movement patterns as they are about how diligent they are about setting up a rehab program. Gotcha. Cool. And then we talked a little bit about flexibility, mobility, within the prehab sort of setting. There's also a lot of debate about flexibility and mobility as it relates to performance. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean? Is it good? Is it bad? Should you do it before it, after it, static, dynamic? You know, there are all these arguments going on kind of all the time. And those arguments have been going on since as long as I can remember. You know, when I was in high school, there were a lot of arguments about it. And that was at least 150 years ago. (laughs) So what are your thoughts on, first off, can we define flexibility versus mobility? Yeah, and you're going to find a lot of different definitions. So conceptually, how I see it is, let me give an example. I'll give a personal example. Okay. Um, So this involved track climbing? Oh, yeah. So I was climbing this trad route. <laughs> this, I was in this off with chimneys, pitch six. And I started, no, all right. So uh, I know myself as, a, as an individual and as a climber yeah. that I, two of my weaknesses, one is finger strength, which I'll continue to, continue to work on. Yep. Uh, the other is hip mobility and hip flexibility. Okay. There's several times I get into a position, say I'm climbing in a gym, I'm gym climbing, mm-hmm. there's a high step or a high foothold. And I'm kind of in this weird three-dimensional position and I lift my knee up, try and get my foot on the high hold. And I'm like an inch too short. And I think, all right, why can't I get my foot on that hold? I have a jug on my left, let's say a jug on my left hand. And I'm trying to do a right foot high step and I take my right hand and I help my leg up. Yeah. I almost, I don't know if you, I don't know how flexible your hips are, but have you ever been in a situation like that? Oh yeah. And I see comp climbers do it all the time. Yeah. You know, a lot of the best comp climbers will put their leg into a position. Yeah. So yeah. we're physically lifting our leg, putting mm-hmm. it into position. Mm-hmm. So then I pause and you think about it. 
do you have flexibility in your hip? Do you have that ability to get your hip, hip up? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're flexible in the hip. You can physically lift it. Yep. Do you have mobility, meaning your own ability to, without external help, get your hip in that position? Right. So the strength to move it into that position on your own. Correct. And so regardless of how people coin the terms, because I still think there's a lot of you know, semantics out there of like, what term is what? A lot of arguing about semantics. And I really don't care about semantics. More so I care about the concept itself. Right. Is let's just define flexibility as this passive ability to go to your end range. And mobility is your active ability to use it for the purposes of this discussion. Yep. So I lie on the ground or I, let's say I'm standing and I grab my knee and now I'm on the ground. So I'm no longer on the route. And let's just pretend that I sent the route. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm on the ground. I'm standing uh, on one leg. I'm taking my right knee, and I'm lifting it with all my strength. Uh, sorry, I'm lifting it with my hands. My hip is completely relaxed, and I lift my knee all the way up to my chest. I then release my knee. And most of the time what happens, this is the case for me and a lot of people that have this lack of mobility, is what do you think happens with your knee? It's going to drop a little. It's going to drop a little. And depending on how strong your hip flexor is, so the muscle that lifts your your um, your thigh, it's going to drop maybe a centimeter, maybe an inch, maybe two or three inches. Mm-hmm. And so what do I see from a movement standpoint? How do I compensate? Well, then I actually start to lean back. Because when I lean back, it helps me get that hip a little higher. Yep. You lean back on the route, well, your center mass is now leaving your toes. It's not an efficient strategy. Mm-hmm. And so flexibility is one thing. And what I've found is if I combine flexibility training with mobility training before I get on the wall, it allows me to make sure I can use all of my available range. Right. So what I do is now I've built this into my warm-up. I used to only stand and do these like mobility drills while I'll grab my, my knee and pull it into my chest and flex my ankle up to try and simulate clearing that foothold. Mm-hmm. Now I actually lie on the ground and I still do, it's still dynamic stretching. I pull that knee into my chest as much as I can, maximal range, and then I let it go. And then I pull it into my chest and I let it go. And I when keep, you let it go, are you trying to keep it up as no, much as possible? I'm just okay. doing straight flexibility. This is flexibility. Work. Almost okay. like a modified dynamic stretch. And okay. I start with this. Um, and so I'm pulling it into my chest, staying fully relaxed, let it go, pulling it in, letting it go. So you're basically taking a rubber band and just pulling it, like you cut a rubber band, you're grabbing both ends. And you're just pulling it several times to just get a little bit of short-term elasticity. Mm -hmm. Then I stand up and then I pull it to my chest. I release my hands and I turn on my hip flexor muscle to try and keep that position without it dropping down. Right. And I found, and try this on your own or whoever's listening, try it on your own, is it becomes a lot easier to, to do because you loosened up that rubber band in the short term so your hip flexor muscle can fire and so you can get that maximal height. Mm-hmm. Then I go to the wall and I lean against the wall and do that same thing, except now I just actively use the entire range. And so then I just, instead of pulling it up passively, I just flex my knee as high as I can on my own and then slowly let it down. And I found I had to now do less of that you know, kind of awkward hip grab. I still have a lot right. of work to do. Sure. Um, but it's, uh, I found that that's a way for me to understand that concept more in my own body of, yes, I have these stiff hips. It's really hard to get my knee up to that position, 
but my hip flexor muscle that activates in that top position is not doing its job properly. I can't use the range that I actually have. Yeah. Do you think one is more important than the other? Does it like, I'll give you my example here. I often climb with people who say you're really flexible and I'm like, no, I might be the least flexible person you've ever met. I have good mobility for my level of flexibility. So if I can passively get my leg into a position, I can usually get it there actively. Um, So in the case of like a high step or a high heel hook or something like that, I can get my leg through my entire range of flexibility under my own power, you know, and I don't need to passively pull it there. Whereas a lot of people who are more flexible that I've climbed with that are making these comments to me just can't get their foot there. They don't, they don't have the mobility. They've got a much greater range of flexibility, not nearly as much mobility. Would you say one is more important than the other, or do you think they just go hand in hand and that's the way it is? You know, I think in climbing, having mobility is really important because you, you know, unless you're grabbing a giant jug mm-hmm. on one hand and you have the ability to grab your leg and right. put it into a more flexible position, maybe that would be the fle- mm-hmm. more flexible person mm-hmm. would be in a better position because they can stabilize the rest of their body. They can get to that higher foothold right. that maybe you're not able to. Right. But outside of that situation, it's hard to find too many situations where unused flexibility is effective because on climbing we're mostly actively going you know stepping or moving from hold to hold Mm -hmm. i can say the one that sets people up for risk for injury more what do you think is set someone up more to injure themselves the scenario flexibility yeah and flexibility especially once they somehow get into a position that they can't control right then they're no longer using their muscles to stabilize they're hanging on their joint and their ligament Mm-hmm. And there's no other place in the body I see that more so than the shoulder. Like the shoulder is the most mobile joint in the body. The humeral head, which is the ball, is four times the size of the socket. So you're thinking of like a golf ball on a golf tee. Right. And yeah. that allows us all this crazy mobility. But for climbers, it gets a little bit tricky when you get into positions that you cannot stabilize. And then you're relying on you know, your fingers contacting a really small crimp and that's going to drive what happens and also at the shoulder. Right. So So do you think it's important to be able to, you know, for instance, if I'm lying on my back, reach my hands straight overhead, I don't have that great a range of motion um, because of shoulder surgeries, because maybe because of high school wrestling, all sorts of reasons, a lot of it climbing, I think, I can't, get my thumbs to the ground if I'm reaching overhead. Is it important that I stretch and can eventually get into that position? Is it more efficient when I'm hanging on the wall or maybe only when I'm climbing on vertical rock? What's your thoughts on that sort of shoulder flexibility? Is it more dangerous for me? Yeah, well, I think one thing is, we'll start with before injury, let's just start with performance, right? Okay. Will that affect your climbing performance is one question. Yeah. So like, so how, how tall are you? 5'8". Five 5'8". Eight. Five eight. So let's say there's a hold that if you had full flexibility, you know, and I'm about the same height. So let's say you have full flexibility at 5'8", 
um, you were able to grasp that next hold. You wouldn't have to use an intermediate. And then let's say the we have a scenario where you have mobility you set in your shoulder. You're not able to use your full size. Mm-hmm. That may set you up into a position for injury or maybe not even injury. Maybe you can't even grab the intermediate and you can't send the route, right? And so from a performance standpoint, I find that may be an issue, right? Now, 5'8 is pretty tall in general or not you can compare to Thank male you. I appreciate yeah that. <laughs> you know compare male, male and female and average climber right yeah. Yeah. um so usually at that height you can get most holds depending depending on the route imagine if you were five foot mm-hmm. and you had that same mobility deficit so that's closing down a lot of your opportunities mm-hmm. from an injury risk standpoint probably less so if you know if you're not reaching for those those holds because like you said you can use all your mobility But I think this topic of relative flexibility is something I need to discuss when it comes to this example of reaching your arm overhead. And I don't think this is talked about much. It's a newer topic, even in physical therapy. Um, So a lot of medical practitioners aren't as familiar with it. And then in climbing and performance, it's something I'm not sure as many people are familiar with. So maybe if I break through what relative flexibility is, it'll give a little bit more um context to do you really need that range and is it could it prevent injuries or okay. cause injuries so let's take the example you're lying on the ground yep. and your knees are bent and the we're testing the flexibility of your lat muscle so a muscle that starts in your low back and thoracolumbar fashion goes up and attaches to the shoulder and so the lat muscle is going to be one of the muscles that restricts your ability to bring your arm fully overhead right So let's say in your case, you lie down, your knees are bent. And the reason the knees are bent are just to put your pelvis in a neutral or tilted position. Mm -hmm. You reach all the way overhead and you stop, what, how how many inches from the ground, do you think? Mm, Three, maybe. Okay, stop three inches from the ground. Your your hand doesn't touch the ground in that position. We look at your rib cage or your midsection, completely stable, nothing changes. You just can't get your hand to the ground. Right. That would be one scenario. So let's call that like scenario one. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> that's, scenario. that's a good thing to call it. All right. Scenario two. We have another climber. Same height, same anthropometric, same size, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, they go into that same position. They're lying on their back. Their knees are bent. They reach their arm up overhead. They keep their rib cage stable. There's no arching. And they touch their arm to the ground. That's scenario two. Okay. Final scenario. Scenario three. Different climber, same attributes. Arm goes all the way up overhead at about 75% through the motion. You start to see their spine arching. So their, their rib their, cage their, flares up. Yeah, their back arches, their rib cage flares up. They touch their arm to the ground. Mm-hmm. You got these three scenarios. And most climbers can fit themselves into one of those scenarios, whether right. just have a friend assess you or you know do it on your own, see which one you fit in. Each one needs something different. So the first one, let's say for in your case, there will be the debate whether you need flexibility or not. And if you can reach all the holds on the route, you may be okay. And you may just need to do some type of dynamic warm-up to use all the range you can. Right. Let's say you have a project where the reach is an extra inch and you can't get it. That's when you're saying, all right, mobility work. You got to be able to 
go through a scenario we talked about before where you maybe do some flexibility training and then you try and utilize that range so that you can have that range of motion prior to, to getting on the wall. Um, so that's one of the one or the other. You have to kind of decide if you if you're really going to try and push that flexibility. Right. Someone's six two. All right, you probably don't have to you know have to do that. Sure. If you're a shorter climber, five foot. In general, in climbing, it may be smart to have that full range. Yep. So now we go to scenario two. They don't really have to do that much. They have full range of motion. They have good movement patterns. Maybe they can have some added strength and stability at those end ranges to mm -hmm. help uh, improve their ability to stabilize the shoulder, but they're in a good position. Number three is the one that's the most susceptible to, to having injury, having risk, and also to having challenge on the rock wall. And what's happening really is your lats attach to your low back. And as you bring your arm up overhead, your lats have more stiffness or relative stiffness compared to the... Well, which muscles do you think in the low back would keep you from flaring your ribs out? Uh, I would imagine everything in your lower back is what is what does it. Yeah, everything in your low back and then even in the front of your stomach. Sure. So like your your abdominal muscles. Yeah. So the the ones that keep the ribs down are the external obliques. Those are the ones that kind of keep your mm -hmm. your ribs from flaring. And so for that person, we have two scenarios. One try this. Can you engage your abdominal muscles, you know, lower those ribs, and can you bring your arm all the way down to the ground? And if they can, perfect. You need to start to engage your lower abdominals and especially do that as a warm-up when you get on the wall and you're about to reach something really high overhead. Make sure that you program to keep your abdominals engaged. Right. Because if you don't do that, your ribs are going to flare. Yep. And then what do you lose? you, I mean, you lose strength through your whole midsection, yeah. essentially. You lose core tension, yeah. right? And so that would be the scenario where you'd want to say, you actually do have full mobility if you can stabilize your midsection and move through it. So scenario one and three can essentially, a person could fall into both. Like if I stay, if I keep my core engaged, stay stable, I can only get this far. But then if I allow that tension to disappear, flare my ribs up, I can get my hands to the ground. Correct. hundred percent. So you got to make sure you're not like phantomly going in the wrong category. Right. Like it's not a, a false positive. Yeah. Um, but then there's a scenario in category three where let's say you engage your stomach mm -hmm. and you reach your arm all the way up and you can't get to the end position. Mm -hmm. So now you're kind of like that category one, right? Yep. You can't get that full range. So those are the people then that you have to say, well, you have to make that decision. You know, can you work on flexibility in your shoulder at the same time that you're working on abdominal strength? Gotcha. And do you need to do some passive stretching prior to get a little bit more mobile in your joint? Mm -hmm. And then you can engage your stomach, reach your arm up overhead, touch the ground, and then use that on the rock wall with everything engaged. Right. So this is a complex topic and hopefully people listening can kind of follow, follow through it. But it's actually, if you categorize yourself in those three categories it's quite simple but your homework completely changes depending on which category you're in sure i mean it's definitely a, a super complex topic that's why people have been experts have been arguing about it since the beginning of sports science you know there's also in this same vein there's the idea of should you stretch before performance 
or before training or should it happen after and should it be static or dynamic so let's say we need more flexibility you know we've got a an example person here who needs more flexibility whether it's shoulders hamstrings whatever there's literature that says you lose power by static stretching if it's over 30 seconds i think is what a lot of the literature says um but then those studies are very specific so and mostly in the lower body too right exactly so what's your take on should we be doing any kind of static stretching before climbing yeah and a lot of people sometimes you know i teach these clinics and i you know i work with a lot of climbers and a lot of people think of me as the like anti-static stretching guy right which is only dynamic stretch only do this and i've tried to make a good habit now of prefacing that no dynamic stretching is the six minutes before you get on the rock wall five to six minutes is you're now using all this range of motion sports specific positions i'm a fan of increasing mobility and the question is whether statically stretching is the way to do it but maybe let's categorize is increasing flexibility right let's say increasing flexibility when should you do it and increasing flexibility they so they have research studies and a lot of these are in the let's say the hamstring muscles so muscle in the thigh mm-hmm. and three sets of 30 seconds or one to two minute stretch increases range of motion hands down you can find plenty of research that doing static stretching increases range of motion and is that a short-term increase does it then go back to normal or over time do you actually increase the range of motion no, permanently they actually have great research that shows that in specifically in the hamstring that you're able to make long-term gains with okay. it the yep. question is the mechanism and is there right. better mechanisms to improve that flexibility a lot of the newer theories are n- are targeting that you're not changing the muscle length exactly right and it's more there's a lot of hypotheses that are floating around of what's going on and we i don't think anyone's really been able to fully you know determine that because there's little ways that you can trick muscles for Mm -hmm. example let's say you're stretching your hamstrings or someone's stretching your hamstrings for you Mm -hmm. you're lying on your back you have your leg up and they're stretching it passively yeah then you engage your hamstring muscle press against it yeah exactly you pressing into them you relax and they gain like seven to ten more degrees right. in a single moment. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're doing is you're tricking. It's called the GTO or the Golgi tendon organ. You're tricking the the impulse, and it's, it's something that you kind of like sneak in in that moment of when it releases to get extra range. Right, and it's like a neurological gain in the yeah in flexibility. Exactly, and there's another thing called PFS, post facilitatory stretch. Let's say this is one. Let's we'll say for your hip flexors. You engage the muscle vigorously at a mid-range, and this is like a maximal, you know, kind of vigorously vigorous gauge. And then someone comes in and yanks your leg back as fast as they can. And that's one you gain 20, 25 degrees in a mm. single technique. You have to be very safe and very careful with that. <laughs> it sounds um, like it. But it's one where you completely trick your nervous system. So there's so much about flexibility that we don't actually know. Um, but and what I... Oh yeah. Are these nervous... Like the the neurological changes, is there literature showing that those can be long term as well? I'm not familiar with any okay. literature for long term. Okay. Yeah, the most of the time that I use those is I could say like anecdotally or clinically, mm-hmm. I'll use those in the short term to create a window sure. of mobility that yep. someone could then use. 
Gotcha. Um, but um, I don't think there's much, if any, research on. Um, I'd have to go and dig that up to see what's yeah, available. Yeah, just, just curious. But, yeah. um, but what I can say is that, you know, flexibility training, like I can speak to myself. I try and do as frequently as possible when I'm not at the rock gym or not at the route. Mm-hmm. And I have a busy day, so it comes down to right before I go to bed. And I constantly think of neurologic changes, though. So, for example, all the time we're sitting, we're climbing, whatever it is, and our posture is rounding forward, right? Yep. So, I find that if I do my posture stretches, opening up my chest, yep. going on a foam roll, and it's not that active. It's just kind of like elongating those muscle spindles. Um, if I do that before I go to bed, my thought is that when I'm sleeping, there's some type of neurologic carryover that I'm not going to wake up in this rounded crunch position. Mm-hmm. And so I typically find, I recommend most upper body stretches for people to do. Do them whenever you want, do them as frequent as possible. But I find that this like nighttime routine is effective. And especially the issue with habits is people tend to not do things that frequently and then they drop them off. And so if you piggyback on a habit such as I brush my teeth, floss them, mouthwash every night, well, that's linked now with my stretches. Yeah. So it's I like piggybacked on another habit. It's interesting you say that. Lately I've been, at night I've noticed that I start sitting more, you know, whether it's sitting at the dinner table or sitting on the couch with my wife watching a Netflix show or something. I'm sitting for quite a lot longer and my posture gets worse and worse, you know, especially if I'm on the couch watching Netflix, eating ice cream, all the other bad things. Um, then my posture gets bad. So lately, these past few weeks, I've been doing some stretches, doing some foam rolling um, at night in place of sitting on the couch or, you know, in every few minutes while sitting on the couch, I'll get on the floor and do some stretches. And, and frankly, I feel better when I wake up that next morning. I just feel like I'm moving better. You know, we've already established that I'm getting older. I'm ancient. When I get out of bed in the morning, there are a lot of mornings where I can feel that my body has tightened up, like drawn into itself. The stretches at night seem to help with that. Yeah. And there has to be some type of neurologic component to that right. rather than just right. the physiology of lengthening the muscle. Yeah, and does that matter? Like that's that's a question I often ask as a coach who's my whole goal is to get results for this climber, to help them find a way to get results. Does it matter what the mechanism is that's happening and if we're actually lengthening their muscles or not? Frankly, I don't really care. I don't care what the mechanism is as long as it's working. I don't think we know the mechanism. Right. Like there's so much that we think we know and we have no concept. Like you think of the the idea of why some climber climbs all the time in the gym, climbs outside hard routes, has terrible posture, never does any rehab, prehab, any type of exercise and has zero injuries. And then you have somebody that does all the rehab exercises in the world, you know, climbs, you know, two days on one day off or listens to their body and they have all these injuries all over their body. There's so much about what is going on, I would say in the brain and almost like the spinal cord level that we don't know. And we have proposed ideas and thoughts of these mechanisms. Um, But 
it's I'd say it's more in my mind results driven until we actually figure out what's going on. Right, right. I think for me that's the tough I have a tough time connecting to a lot of the literature, a lot of the studies for that simple reason that oftentimes we don't know what the mechanism is or we don't know how to study why it's happening. And so the literature oftentimes seems incomplete to me. And I just recently was reading, I can't remember his name right now, but the, the scientist who decided in a study that it's not lactic acid, it's lactate, and it's this is what it's actually doing instead of what we thought for these previous years. But he also, in this paper, says the coaches have been training the athletes right all along, mm. you know, regardless of the fact that we just discovered that we're all using the wrong terminology. It's not actually happening the way we think it's happening. The coaches have discovered that this is the best training method. And now our research supports that that training method works. And that's what I'm often seeing. You know, if, I, if, if I think a person needs more flexibility, needs better mobility, whether the research says that it should work or not or understands the mechanism of why it improves performance, I don't give a damn as long as it improves performance. Yeah, and I think the key to that is performance is measurable. Right. And so if you measure it, if you quantify it, then you can track it. Yeah. And whether it's short-term or long-term over time, that's, that's the goal. And as long as you're not doing damage then then it's probably the right direction. Yeah, and I should qualify that by saying I appreciate the literature and the research. I just look at it with a skeptical eye when I've seen this has worked for 100 people and this research is saying that doesn't work, then maybe there's something missing in the research. So I appreciate mm -hmm. that it's there, but oftentimes I'm going to wait until it catches up. And the research is changing now that, you know, with functional MRI and TMS and these different ways to measure brain activity. And there's some really cool, especially so I'm a professor at USC and we have a lot of really good researchers. And as they're starting to look at the brain effects when you do different interventions, mm -hmm. some really interesting things are coming out. Like, for example, and this is like a study, but if you think about the ankle, right? So there's a study done by Dr. Fisher and colleagues where they basically did a manipulation to the ankle. So, you know, like a, a quick thrust, right? A high velocity thrust, and oftentimes you'll get a cavitation or a pop. So I'll manipulate the ankle. And then they'd go and they would measure and check to see what was going on in the regions of the brain associated with the ankle. And about five minutes after that technique, they saw that the region for the brain associated for the ankle, the motor cortex, lit up. And there was this five-minute window. Five minutes after. Yeah, five, it lasted for five minutes of where it was lit up and there was this, uh, their discussion or hypothesis from this is after you do a manipulation to gain range of motion, you have a five-minute window to utilize mm, it. Gotcha. And then they looked at these low-grade mobilizations, so these kind of slow mobilizations, and they're there wasn't this like large light up or excitability. And so they're starting to look at what happens or changes at the brains. And I think what we'll start finding in the future is that we have these kind of short-term effects from these interventions that give us a window to make a change. And then the key is how can we utilize that to make something a little bit more long-term? Yeah, gotcha. And I want to get back to how the brain plays into all of this. So I think there's some really 
cool things going on and some hot debates happening um, because of the way the brain interacts or, or we interact with what the brain is telling us, I guess. Um, but I do want to ask a couple of more questions and dig into this static stretching idea a little more. There's yeah. been lots of research about and, and lots of literature and lots of people extrapolating wild things from the research about losses of power because of static stretching. Does that mean we shouldn't do any static stretching before performing, before training? And by before, meaning like 60 seconds to a minute before you get on the wall? Uh, right. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, as we're warming up, should we be doing any static stretching? Or is it more, is the literature more saying you shouldn't static stretch and then immediately get on something dynamic? Yeah, it's more the right. latter. And it's more like, and this is where I give like the forearm stretch example. So you're statically stretching your form, let's say pulling your fingers back for 30 mm -hmm. seconds in between routes. And you do that, you have your 30 seconds, let's say even a minute hold. Right when you're done, you're already tied in, you go and climb on the wall. Yep. That's where you're going to get the, the most negative carryover in decreasing performance. Right. Now, if you're stretching out your hips statically, you know, before you go on the wall, and that's a couple minutes before, um, even a minute or two before, I don't think you're going to have any issues, right? We're, right. we're, we're talking mostly about when are you going to hurt yourself climbing <laughs> um, from a static stretch. It's likely going to be immediately following and something that's in the hand, wrist, fingers, or shoulder. Right, right. Yeah, so those static stretches, say I've got someone, myself, who has good mobility, needs better flexibility that they can then build the mobility into. Should I or could I do hamstring stretches as part of my very initial warm up? You know, get my blood moving a little bit, do some static stretching, do some dynamic stretching right before I get on the wall. For sure. And I think even like the example I gave with my hips, that's what I do. You know, it's uh, I still I wouldn't consider like me lying on my back, grabbing my knee, holding for three seconds, releasing as much like a true static stretch. That's a little bit more like a hybrid. You know, it's a, right, I still right. consider that dynamic, but I don't see any issue with getting all that tissue pliable statically if right after you then make sure you can use it. Right. I think the challenge becomes let's say in that example, you just do that passive stretching and then you jump up on the rock wall. You probably should have done something in between dynamically to make sure you can use and control that motion, especially in the shoulder joint. That would be the one that I find the most issues. People, especially climbers, completely overstretch their shoulders. Mm. You do not need the mobility you're given, especially yep. the, it's called the clavicular fibers of pec major, but basically when you bring your arm out into the letter T mm -hmm. and you stretch your chest. Right. You're basically mostly, most climbers are fully flexible in that position and yeah. you're just stretching the capsule of your shoulder, which you do not want to do because right. that makes you more mobile. Um, it's so the I find, same when you pull your arm across your chest and, you know, really pull the shoulder away from, or pull the humeral head away from the 
like the cup that it sits in. Yeah, same thing. And your shoulder blade is peeling off as well. And so now you're right. you're pulling away and actually just stretching your shoulder blade rather rather than the shoulder itself. Right. Gotcha. So um Okay. So yeah, I think it's you know, everything goes in trends. And I used to give these seminars to um, coaches and climbers about seven years ago and asked the question. And I still give these seminars. I, I gave them, I gave three this week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked climbers, who here knows about dynamic stretching? Seven years ago, no one would like raise their hand, right? Right. Now, like almost everyone raised their hand and they have some type of dynamic stretching warm up. Right. And dynamic stretching's mm-hmm. become this like fix all. Everyone's yeah, doing it. I think it. it's gone the other way. Like, of course you do dynamic stretching, but you'd never static stretch. Why would you ever static stretch? Yeah, and then now you're going to start seeing this trend come back around as, no, static stretching is important. There's just a certain window of time where it may not be the most prudent to use. Right. And in certain parts of your body. Yeah, and when I was a gymnastics coach, we spent a lot of time stretching. You know, being flexible is part of your perform- of your performance when you're a gymnast. You get scored on, can you get into these positions? Um, so we would do really long stretches, you know, sit in a stretch for 10 minutes. I wouldn't do that before I climb because I know how my body feels afterward. <clears throat> and But I did, as a gymnastics coach, see a lot of results that way in flexibility. Um massive gains in flexibility. So when I hear people say you can't static stretch and then gain flexibility, I'm like, you're crazy. I've watched thousands of people get really, really flexible through long static stretches. So I think it's a valid thing, but it's something I would do after performing or after training personally. I don't know if anything even supports that, but that's what I would do. Yeah. And I'm I'm on the side of that as well as I don't think there's any research to necessarily say when is most effective, mm-hmm. but there's some research that shows when it could potentially be injurious or not very effective. And it's a short window. It's a short window of time, but that time is basically the closer you are to getting on the wall, that that window is the time that you may want to think about using some type of uh dynamic type of stretch where make sure that you're also cardiovascularly warmed up a lot Mm -hmm. of people forget about that right um but yeah the timing of it i think it comes down to personal preference so and and in the end probably just doing it um a lot of people will not do something and just having that routine having that habit of making sure that you can get in the the actual the actual exercise yeah totally well you brought up the brain and there's a lot of talk right now about how the brain sends pain signals to us and what that pain means. And it, it becomes a cloudy, maybe even dangerous subject because on one end you can go to the extreme that says pain doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's, it's just this signal, survival signal that the brain is giving us and you should ignore it. Yes, it's weakness leaving the body. <laughs> right. But pain is a signal for a reason. So how should we as athletes be interpreting the pain signals that the brain is sending us? Yeah, and I think to understand pain, maybe we go back to those two examples I gave of we have a climber that is always getting hurt, but they're doing every injury prevention exercise in the book, and they're, they're listening to their body. They're just always getting hurt. 
Maybe they're listening too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have a... Yeah, another, which I think is a thing. It yes. happens a lot. Yeah. And then we have another climber who is just climbing all the time, over climbing, not listening to their body. And they have no injuries and they're doing no injury prevention. And this is actually a very real two categories. Like mm-hmm. you can yeah, ask some absolutely. of your friends, um, you know, how often do you do these types of things? And so I think to understand that is first to understand the mechanism, mechanisms of pain, as you were saying. And so there's an analogy that I'll give and imagine you're at the climbing gym and you parked your car, like you got an awesome spot, like someone just pulled out, parking is always an issue and you're able to park your car right in the front of the climbing gym. You have, you know, you have a crag pack in the climbing gym or crag pack in your car and someone decides they want to break into it. So they go through and they punch the window in, they break through your car and the nature of punching through the window, breaking that glass, sets off your car alarm. So that's scenario one. Okay. Scenario two, you go to a climbing gym, you can't find a parking spot. Happens all the time. Park mm-hmm. four blocks away. You go to a climbing gym, and they're playing some loud music. And the bass from that music sets off your car alarm four blocks away. That's a loud climbing gym. It's a loud climbing gym. (laughs) (laughs) But the the analogy is, think of those two things, is we have a car that you break through the window and it takes this massive amount of force to actually Mm -hmm. send this warning signal, which is your car alarm, Mm -hmm. versus parking four blocks away, a little bit of bass Mm -hmm. sets off that car alarm. Right. And it's an analogy for the sensitivity of our nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so you think about someone that has a very sensitive nervous system, maybe even crimping something, just putting a little extra crimp strength and they feel this, you know, this feeling in their finger. It sends a signal to their spinal cord, to their brain that says, that's that boom box that's playing four blocks away. This right. is bad. Goes to their frontal cortex, interprets it. Oh, you had a pulley injury a couple of years ago. This may be the same thing. Ow, yep. that hurts. That's pain. Right. Versus someone that, takes a lot, you know, you have to drop, you know, drop a weight on their hand or or something to actually have Mm -hmm. them have that interpretation. And so those are two kind of extreme analogies of this perception of pain. Right. And all that pain is, as you're mentioning, is it's a perception. It's a warning sign from the tissues in our body. They go through our nerves, they go through our spinal cord, through our brain, and our brain comes up with an interpretation. Yeah. So how do we is there a way to interpret it correctly or is it always us guessing? Well, I found a really cool way. So I'm always like, I play with a lot of stuff and I'm always like a little mad scientist of trying to figure things out. You definitely come across as a mad scientist. All right. Well, I don't know if that's, uh, (laughs) I I do not think that's a compliment, but I will, I will take that. (laughs) And so it's a good mad scientist. Yeah. And it's uh, and it's, it's kind of cool. So I, so I started doing this, it's about four or five years ago, is I would have someone come in and let's say they have pain in their finger and it's a, they come in and they say it's a pulley sprain. Mm-hmm. And so that's like an A2 pulley sprain, a ligament in their finger on their right ring finger. Okay. That's our, our case, our patient. So they come in and they've had this for longer than three months. Let's say they've had it for six months and it just won't go away and they're doing everything in the book. Mm-hmm. And literally in the book, in my book. In, right, uh, yeah, in the, climate, literal, the literal book. Yeah, in, in Climb Injury Free. Um, so, so they're coming in and I set them up with a mirror. And I, it's on their right side is where their injury is. Yep. I put their right hand and left hand both on the table. 
I split a mirror down their body, and we're looking at their left hand. Right. Their left hand has a reflection of their right hand in the mirror. So basically, their non-injured hand is the actual hand you could physically see. Yep. And, then and they the other ref- one is a reflection. Exactly. There's a reflection. Of the non-injured hand. Of the non-injured hand, but they think that that's their right hand. Or right. they know it's not their right hand. But The brain reads it that way. The brain reads it that way. I do a couple priming exercises where I tickle the fingers different ways and a few different ways for them to start to feel that sensation of like, oh, that image in the mirror is my right hand. Right. So, all right, I've done these couple primer exercises. They know what it is. I then put them in a position where I either test their crimp strength or I press on the, uh, on the ligament on that A2 pulley right. in that left hand whatever you know sets off that yeah, pain signal whatever their pain signal or i have them do one of those weird like you know you get a pulley sprain and you always do this weird type of thing that creates pain oh yeah and you always yeah, yeah. keep testing it right for sure so i have them do that whatever their their test is right mm-hmm. and so they do that on their left side their non-injured side they see their fake right side in the mirror and their right hand starts hurting right and it's the same exact hurt or pain that they've been having for these several months. Mm-hmm. And so I can then, with a decent level of confidence, then say what you're feeling, hurt does not equal harm. And that's right. a perception of pain. And you're that car that's four blocks from the climbing gym with the boom box, and you have this sensitivity. And what we can do is these series of habituation exercises to get you comfortable with loading that with this low level of pain so that you can continue to climb. Your tissues are fine. There is no tissue damage. Yeah. So, you know, in that scenario, your brain is this overprotective mother who just doesn't want you to get hurt. Is there a way to temper that, that we can, you know, stop the overprotective mother from constantly telling us to put our knee pads on because we're going to fall and hurt ourselves? Yeah, so there's some simple ways, and then there's some more complex research-based ways. Okay. And I don't know which one to start with, but... (laughs) Let's start simple. So start simple is just knowing hurt doesn't equal harm. Right. And get a mirror for $6 Mm -hmm. and train yourself to have that sensation and say, this is okay. And create that feeling and knowing that whatever that exact sensation is that you're feeling that right side, your right side is doing nothing. It's just your brain perceiving that. And when you get on the rock wall, that same level of intensity is still okay. Now, yeah. if the intensity level, let's say that's a 2 out of 10 discomfort, and you go on the rock wall and you're doing a bunch of single finger monos or you know whatever mm-hmm. on that injured finger, and now you're not prepared for it, well, now you're an 8 out of 10 pain. No, you, you've overshot it, and you, you kind of took the message wrong. Um, but the simple way is just knowing hurt doesn't equal harm, and then habitually starting to load it. And hangboard finger, like finger routines, that's one of my thoughts why actually progressively, progressively reloading uh, the fingers after a pulley sprain works so well. Yeah. Is just because you're habituating yourself to that pain sensation. Sure. Yeah. Training your brain to not, not pay that much attention to it. Yeah. Like it still works. It's, it works just fine. It's not going to explode our finger. You know, your brain, your brain learns that the same, I think, as it learns that this is a, a, a danger to you. Yeah, for sure. And so that's like from a simple way, hurt doesn't equal harm and habituate. Like those are the, the two things. Easier said than done mm-hmm. because then that's that fine line of saying, oh, am I pushing too hard? Am I not right. pushing hard enough? Yeah. 
And, um, and then that's where you get into the research is the research on this is really cool. And there's great research. Uh, there's this three phase system from, it's called the NOI group. Um, and, uh, David Butler and, um, Lorimer Mosley are two pain scientists that have really pushed the research on this subject. And they have this great book, Explain Pain. Um, that's now, I think it's, it's now hard to get. It's like, I think you try and get a copy of it's like 75 bucks or something. Oh, right. but, yeah. but there's an audio book for it. That's quite easy to, to get. But, um, but anyway, for their concept of what they started doing, it's called graded motor imagery. And there's this three phase system to get you into habituating your nervous system to this perceived pain. And they have these apps they are called like recognize apps. And you basically will have an image of your hand. The first thing is called laterality. And so you'll have an image of your hand and it's someone else's hand, but you can upload your own images. Mm -hmm. And it's your right and left hand and all these different orientations like on this app. And it's like your right hand like bent to the side, your right hand upside down, your left hand, all these positions. And there's a left and right option. And you'll take a test. You know, like you take a, a test of visualization and it'll show about 20 images of right and left hands in different positions. You have to guess which one it is. Mm. What they've shown in research is because this is ingrained in the brain, the perception of that area in the brain is skewed. It's called cortical smudging. So you basically don't have a very good representation of the finger of the hand in the brain if you've had this persistent pain. So someone that does this test that then calculates right versus left how long did it take you to react to a right hand? Right. How many times did you get the right hand wrong? And then if you see a big difference, like you got, you know, uh, 10 out of 10 left hand and you got six out of 10 right hand orientations and it took you an extra second, then you actually just use that app to retrain that perception of the brain. And there's all these different ways, but that's just an example. Interesting. Yeah, and is it the same? I mean, we're talking fingers, hands here. I imagine it's the same for any area of the body. Yeah, they have one for each like part of the body, except oh, cool. I don't think they have a hip and but they ha- they have like for most regions of the body they have it. And so you like get that app and you go through it and I actually just use it as a diagnostic test at first. And if that's off, then that's another thing for me to say, "Oh, well we're thinking more perceptions in the brain, cortical reasons versus the tissue itself." And then there's a few other options. So that's like phase one. So that's stage one. Mm-hmm. We can go on a whole you know, podcast on that topic. Sure. But we'll move to stage two, and that's explicit motor imagery. And this is where it's actually really interesting. For example, like imagine right now, let's say, like put yourself in a situation you have like a pulley sprain. I'm just using that because I find that this stuff works really well for fingers because they're so sensitive. Sure. They actually have a greater representation in the brain. Right. So it doesn't work as well for like the low back or anything. It's hard to perceive right versus left side of your back, those Mm -hmm. types of things. Yeah. But for the fingers, it works so well because it has a large perception in the brain or large map. Um, So imagine you have a pulley sprain. Let's mix it up now. Left side. (laughs) (laughs) Or a balanced injured athlete. Left middle finger. A3, okay, whatever, whatever it is. All right, so you have a finger injury. And then this is where you close your eyes and you imagine getting on a rock route with single finger pockets. Mm-hmm. And you just imagine yarding on those and it's every move is that. 
and you see if that creates a heightened lingering sensation of pain mm. would be an assessment. So actually sit someone down, close their eyes, kind of take them through this uh, visualization. Like, you know, you're putting your finger in that pocket, you're locking your fingers down, you're pulling all your strength. And then you try and see if that actually generates or creates more pain or symptoms. Right. And then what do you think the treatment for that would be? I imagine doing the visualization more. Yeah. yeah. So visualizing and probably habituating to it. So, right. all right, now imagine you're warming up. How's that finger feel? Right. You know, those types of things. And there's been some fascinating research on actually applying manual interventions at very low speeds, like small oscillations, mm -hmm. while you're doing those visualization exercises. So, for example, someone is lying on their stomach and the thoracic spine is a region, so the mid-spine, you know, that our, our nerves and our spinal cord go through. Mm -hmm. And by going through these kind of low-grade pressures on the mid-spine while you're talking in a low voice and putting someone through this uh, habituation of, let's say, loading their fingers on a climbing wall, mm -hmm. that can actually calm down the nervous system. Interesting. Almost like desensitize it so they can go through this visual experience a little bit better. So there's some crazy stuff with this. And yeah. I also actually then take a pulse oximeter, which they're like 40 bucks. They're, they're just something that you put on your finger. They have those in the hospital and it mm. measures your pulse rate. And so then I'll measure someone's pulse rate prior to this and then I'll watch their pulse and watch it kind of drop down. So mm. they're in this like more calm, less anxious fight or flight right. feeling or stage right. as we're then going through this visualization exercise. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm I'm just guessing that this is something that Adam Alder is probably already using, judging by the latest real rock and how deep he is into how the brain works with climbing. So yeah, probably he's on, he's on the cutting edge of things. Like he's on it, man. When, you know, he's he's got everything going. I saw a video of him doing some ballet as well. He just yeah. it's, <laughs> yep. it's actually pretty fun. But he you know he tries everything, and I, I think that's there. He's trying to get that extra. Yeah. I won't even say 10% at this stage. He's trying to get that extra, what? Half a percent or something. Yeah, probably you know? half a Who percent knows? and seeing what he can do. Um, but a lot of these strategies sometimes give you that 90% of that thing that you're completely missing um, part, as part of your re rehab. And then the final part of that, so we went through the, the first stage is this kind of laterality. Mm -hmm. We went through this explicit motor imagery. And then this third phase is a bunch of training with the mirror. And mm. that stuff is fun. Like yeah. you mess with people's brains of... I'm sure. Of where's that... And it started with phantom limb pain, right? Someone right. has a missing appendage and you do this in the mirror and they feel they their feel opposite feel that side. it hurts even though the, the limb isn't even there. Yeah, yeah. So I do a lot of this kind of, especially with fingers, this kind of fun training in the mirror. Of, I consider it fun. I think the, the climbers I work with just... I, don't, I wouldn't say voodoo, but it's, I think they, they see it as kind of like just odd because they're in the experience they're they're having a certain sensation on the opposite opposite side of their body but they're feeling it on their injured side um and it's a very real experience i don't know but uh yeah yeah but i mean we we're taught to believe our brains like seeing is believing you know is this really common phrase that actually isn't true uh seeing is believing but it doesn't mean it's true it doesn't mean it's real it doesn't mean it's reality and i think we're just taught that it is. Um, so it's, you could definitely be messed with, with this kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's a really important concept. And I think that it's going to get more and more popular, mm -hmm. but the challenges mm -hmm. now in the, for example, the field of physical therapy, it's become really popular. 
Yeah. And so now people are coming in with tissue damage. Right. And people are saying, oh, no, it's just perceived pain. Right. That's where I see the dam- or the, the danger in this is when do we stop? Yeah. And I, I think the easiest way to think about when it's appropriate is if you have an acute injury, zero to two weeks, or a subacute injury, two weeks to three months, it's likely tissue damage is playing a strong role in your mm-hmm. pain perception and your inability, let's say, to climb. Mm-hmm. If it's greater than three months, now you're starting to be on the edge of the tissue should be healing. There are, our bodies are resilient and our tissue should be healing at that stage. These central processes, our brain and spinal cord, are probably starting to creep in. Right. You're at one year, two years. Okay, now those are becoming hardened and it's harder to change. And so it's being aware of this in the spectrum. Yeah. Does pain present the same way for acute injury versus overuse injury? It's different because in acute injury, like zero to two weeks, we have a very strong inflammatory process. And so I almost imagine this as you filled this entire room with smoke. And now a lot of things hurt in directions that may not necessarily be tissue damaging, but there's just inflammation. There's this, you know, soupy mixture of edema and fluid in your body that mm-hmm. is now affecting and causing pain signals. Right. Where chronic injuries are typically, if it's not ingrained in the brain, like we talked about, they're typically more mechanical. Meaning when I move in this very specific position, I have my pain. When I come out of it, the pain goes away. Mm-hmm. And that would be a little bit more like a clear, more clear distinction. Okay. It's really interesting. I think I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes in the next few years and, and if there becomes a clearer way to say, yes, this pain is real, you should pay attention to it and you should get that checked out or that's just pain that's presenting itself as something else. Yeah. Um, and, the, so. and there's lots of, there's tons and tons of research now on it. Mm. Um, yeah. And there's going to be more. This is like a hot topic. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is, and then give it five years and there'll be another hot topic. Yep. Right. Absolutely. But, uh, but there's cool stuff like it's called graphesthesia, but your ability to, for example, let's say you have an injury in your palm. Let's say you tore a lumbrical, mm-hmm. right. Um, from doing pockets or whatever you were doing, you tore a lumbrical is your ability to then, if you write letters on someone's palm, like I write an H, an L, an M, is your ability to then perceive the sensation of that letter and interpret it's a letter. And oftentimes people with these chronic injuries, let's say in their palm, for example, mm-hmm. will then have an inability to interpret those letters. Their eyes are closed and you're like writing them on their hand. And so then you reverse the input and their home program becomes, you know, someone writes on your hand a bunch of different words and you try and guess what they are. Right. So there's a bunch of stuff and I think... In the end, it's going to get distilled down to it's just another tool in the toolbox for assessment and treatment. Mm-hmm. But it's very real if you've had long-term pain or discomfort. Sure. If you're not addressing some type of uh, cognitive component. Yeah, gotcha. You just kind of led me into uh, the last question here. We've been talking an hour and 20 minutes at this point. So oh, wow. we should probably wrap it up at some point. But talking about lumbricals and using pockets and injuring them um i believe it was your website i I could be wrong about that talked about 
it's safer to not curl your fingers into your palm when you're holding a pocket. So say you're holding a two-finger pocket rather than curl your index and your pinky and your thumb into your palm that it's safer to not curl them into there. Is yeah, that, is yeah, that, and that correct? Was a, yeah, and that was an article from the blog. I can't take credit for that article. Matt Matt DeStefino De, De, De wrote that. Okay. Um, he's an uh. awesome uh, doctor of physical therapy out of San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's talking about this effect of how you load your tendons and how the lumbricals may shift in that position. Okay. And, you know, after reading that article, I played around with some of these positions and... In practice, climbing in that position where you don't curl the fingers into your palm is damn near impossible. You know, it blocks you from moving in a lot of directions. And it just, as someone who's climbed on pockets for years and most of the sport climbing in my hometown is very, very pocket-based, I don't feel nearly as strong or as safe unless I have my fingers curled into my palm when I'm on a two finger pocket. Um, so even though that's the more dangerous position, should we be training in those more dangerous positions so that we're more prepared when we're on the wall? Yeah. And I guess I'll ask you one question before we get into that then. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you kind of get what you train too, right? And so you've been climbing for how long? How many years? 25 or 26 years, Right, 25 or 26 years. And probably on a lot of like pocketed climbs and pockets were really, really popular when I was a kid, even in the gym, like a lot of the gym were pockets. Now we don't see pockets at all in the gyms. And I think that's a big mistake. Yeah. So, so you basically kind of developed this motor pattern over 25, 26 years. Right. And I would actually side with you to say in your example, Mm -hmm. if you were to be on a challenging route and you were to try and change your finger position, yeah, you'd be more susceptible to injury if you tried to do it the quote-unquote right way. Right. Because your tendons have adapted since you were, you know, since you were younger, and everything has adapted for that to be your maximal ability to pull. Mm-hmm. And if you try and do it the other way, you're actually just fighting yourself, and you may end up getting hurt. So you're kind of yeah. further down that line. But then what I would say is maybe when you train, it may be nice to build in a little bit of training with the fingers in the other position. Gotcha. Because you may need to diversify. You know, when you're, when you, maybe there's a little bulge of rock on that pocket that's mm-hmm. keeping you from locking down the other finger and you have mm-hmm. to keep it up. Well, what I'm finding in practice is that, you know, I was just working on a route. I wasn't working on it. I just went up it for the first time and there was a mono, a giant move off of a mono that, scared me a little bit. Like I had to kind of warm up into it. Like this feels like it could hurt me. Let me wrap my brain around it and see if I can pull the trigger on it and how that feels. Um, and I tried it a couple of times, not curling my fingers into my palm and what was actually happening. And what I've found happens in a lot of situations is you're on this flat plane of rock. Your fingers are in a pocket. If you don't curl your fingers in, like, you know, you're shooting the bullhorns to to people that's what it looks like then your fingers get in the way of you moving past it yeah um and they end up bent backwards if it's a big move you know so so it's not even a not a situation where i could even train myself to to get to that place i'm i'm looking at 
possibly hurting myself worse because my fingers are going to get get bent backwards when I make this big move off of a two finger pocket. Yeah, and that's just the <clears throat> mechanical nature of, of the right, route of right, the route itself. Right, exactly. Yeah, so I think it breaks down as any advice on movement. And I think we we both kind of align with this is there's there's no correct way to move. Like mm-hmm. there's an efi- more efficient way. And yep. in that actual example that you gave I mean, for sure, the more efficient way is to lock your fingers down because there's mm-hmm. no way that you're going to be able to get up the route if you don't do that. Right. But there are mechanical stresses that over time or in a single instant, if you move a certain way, can cause more strain. Okay. So, for example, if let's say a new climber, let's say they just started climbing and they're psyched on pockets mm-hmm. yeah, and they, they want to do a lot of pockets. I'd recommend them to actually train in the way that puts minimal strain on their lumbricals in which those are the muscles in the hand. Mm -hmm. And basically the lumbricals attach from our finger flexors. That's one of their origins. They don't start from bone. They start from tendon. Mm -hmm. And when you look at your hand and you, let's say, flex down your middle finger, you'll start to notice that other fingers start to naturally flex down. Right. That's called... Um, the quadrega effect. Um, but you flex one finger down and the other ones will start to flex down. They share a common tendon. Right. So in that position, if you are maximally engaging one finger and then all your other fingers are fully flexing in a bottom position, you can actually put more stress or strain on this lumbrical muscle. And if you're doing that under high loads, it may tear. Mm-hmm. So if you're an early climber, newer climber, getting into pockets, train first in the safest manner in that position. And that may actually become your strongest grip. Okay. But if you've been doing it for a long time, then maybe build in a little bit of the other grip for, for, for the variety. But I think a good one, I talked to, for example, Sean McColl, who grew up kind of as a youth comp climber. Mm-hmm. And when I was talking to him about different hands, positions, different grips, he rarely uses a closed crimp grip or, right. a, full, or a full crimp. He'll almost always use a half crimp. Yep, same. But he trained that when he was young. Right. And so he had some good coaches early on that said, this is going to minimize strain. And now that's actually a stronger grip from what he says for him than a closed crimp or a yeah. full crimp. I and feel the same. Yeah, exactly. And he he'll almost use that closed crimp or full crimp if he has to get a little extra height, you know, or mm-hmm. flex a little bit more and you have a little bit more range of motion and, and freedom through the wrist as well. Um, but he'll use that in select scenarios. He'll still train it, but he's now trained a half crimp to be the strongest grip. And I almost think that early on in training, we could use this concept of the newer climbers starting to use more pockets is do it the Spider-Man way or the Mm -hmm. bullhorn way or the way that minimizes load on your lumbricals. Mm -hmm. And then when you're climbing harder and harder stuff, you may need to then start actually training the lockdown position right because it's probably how you need to start moving more on the on the wall right and i i do think there's you know you brought up brought up the closed crimp and there's a lot of argument about should you train ever in a closed crimp or not and for me i'm in the same boat as sean mccall though way further down <laughs> the river um but for me, I feel like my half crimp is generally stronger than my full crimp. There are occasions when I need to really lock down on a crimp, and it often takes me quite a few tries to discover that, okay, this is a situation where I need to lock down. Um, lots of people use the full crimp all the time, and there are a lot of things about a full crimp that's more dangerous and more injurious. Um, for the people who 
uh, coming up are now told you should never half crimp or never full crimp in training. I do think there's some value in once you're climbing at a certain level to training that full crimp simply so that it's less chance of injury when you get on the wall and have to use it. Yeah, you have to do that. I mean, it's it's essential. But I think the big point you bring up is later on in training and then when you get into the grades when it really matters right. and when you really need to use that hold. Yeah. Yeah, and I think training, you know, we'll use the same sort of movement training that we talked about early with the prehab and to get people out of the habit of, you know, if I come across a 5'11", 12 minus climber who full crimps everything, part of my training with them is going to be let's climb our warm-ups in open hand or half crimp rather than full crimping everything. And let's just try to get out of the habit of full crimping every single hold and feeling like that's the only way you can hold everything yeah. because it's safer. And then down the road, if they become a you know thirteen mid-13 climber, we might have to go back to that full crimp and train it a little bit to make sure that we're ready to use it after we've taken it out of the vocabulary a little bit. Yeah, and then the challenge also then becomes also people that overuse open hands sure like yeah, that's yeah. you talk to adam andra he thinks that's the most dangerous grip for him hmm. is but he's climbing 515s with far to reach holds on right. pockets where these are kind of this your fingers are barely touching right and he feels that an open hand because it uses less muscular and tendon strength mm-hmm. just kind of hanging through the skin it puts the most amount of passive forces hmm. on on the ligaments and the fingers so I think in the end is you want to be well-rounded, like everything. Right. You right. want to train the safest grips first, but you do not want to overuse everything. You want to have all these different tools in your toolbox to right. use when needed. Right, and train what you're going to be using. If you're a 5'11 sport climber, you don't necessarily need to use the full crimp very often. So training in full crimp shouldn't even be happening at that level, in my opinion. Yeah, or if you're a... You're seventy crack climber. You may right. need, may not need to train single finger pockets. You may not need to train <laughs> yeah. at all. Modest. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> <Just> kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Um, but if you're a V10 boulder, then training in a full crimp is probably a good idea. Yeah. Not all the time, but making sure it's part of your training. Yeah, it's it's kind of cool that you know. I feel like I align with you similarly on these training methodologies. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to see who doesn't, right, and see if yeah. there's a different perspective on. You know, well, there are lots of people saying never train in a full crimp. So, you know, I'll get one of those on and we'll, we'll do, discuss a, do it. a little debate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think we've taken up an hour and a half here. And at some point we have to get out of this hotel room because they're going to kick us out. Um, but I appreciate you reaching out, sitting down again and, and being willing to just spitball things back and forth because when you're a medical professional and you're an expert in your field, it can be tough to come in and just talk about things from all sorts of perspectives instead of just sticking to the, here's what we know, you know, instead of here's what we think, here's this, you know, perspective that maybe doesn't line up with the literature or line up with the research. And, you know, so I appreciate you being willing to just talk about it openly like that. Yeah, and it's a pleasure. It's always fun to, you know, I I learn as much through these podcast interviews, you know, Mm. different perceptions and different ideas. 
than you know me just sharing what I know. And so right. it's, it's constantly, we have such an amazing community as climbers. For sure. It's like, it's the coolest group to, you know, to work with. And, and it's going to continue to grow and things constantly change. And I'll be excited. And, you know, next time we sit down yep. at whatever stage, there's going to be some more fun things to talk about and different research that's coming out about these techniques. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Thanks, Jared. For sure. There's one big takeaway that that I get from these conversations and that, and that I get because I have the privilege of being able to sit down and have long, in-depth conversations with people like Jared and Tyler Nelson and Natasha Barnes and Ava Lopez. And that's that there is no one best way. Uh, no matter whose Instagram you follow or what dogma you believe in or whatever no matter what research you believe is better than the other research different people see different results from different things and and it may sound oftentimes like i'm just agreeing with my guests even though they may sound sometimes like they are in disagreement with each other but in reality i've seen all of these things work and I know that each has its place. And, and I value these conversations for that reason. So thanks, Jared, for sitting down and for being willing to entertain some off-the-cuff spitballing and just some general conversation. It's tough sometimes when you're, um, when you're someone that people look to for answers, it's tough to go into a conversation that you know is going to go out to thousands and thousands of people without knowing what you're going to be asked. Um, but Jared and most of my guests are willing to do that. I don't give anybody questions beforehand. I don't uh, let them prepare other than they are who they are. So they're prepared for what I want to talk to them about. And Man, I am a lucky-ass dude to be able to have these conversations. If you don't already have it, you should check out Jared's book, Climb Injury Free, A Proven Injury Prevention and Rehabilitation System. It's a really fantastic resource for anybody who's working their way through the common and maybe not so common climber injuries. And you can find that book and much more of Jared's content at theclimbingdoctor.com. You can also go right there into the show notes on your pocket supercomputer and click the link and it will take you there just like magic. In future months, be on the lookout for the book I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, The Hard Truth, illustrated by Brendan Leonard. Hoping to have it out by Christmas. Seriously doubt that's going to happen, but the guy can dream, right? You know where to find us, powercompanyclimbing.com. You can find us on the Instagram, the Facebook, and the Pinterest at Power Company Climbing. And this week in particular, you should check us out on Instagram. Uh, our data analyst, Dale, has put together a bunch of charts and graphs with the data that we've been collecting over the last couple of years. And we're going to be putting those out with some explanations, with some questions for you to consider when you're looking at these numbers. Because sometimes things that look like truth and are presented like truth 
are not necessarily truth. And you can spend your entire day searching for those charts, those graphs, and the truth over on the Twitter machine. You're not going to find it there, and you're also not going to find us there because we don't tweet. We scream like eagles. This time, 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 this